Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. Seeing my family members in New York go through what they're going through has not only turned our personal life upside down, but also has turned upside down a bit the near-term priorities of our company to help do our part in addressing this pandemic as well. That's Vivek Ramaswamy. He's the founder and CEO of the pharmaceutical company Royvent Sciences. His wife, a frontline medical responder in New York City, recently tested positive for the virus after giving birth to their son. He spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman Mike Milken. Vivek, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Let's start by talking about Rovent Sciences. The company is only six years old. What was your initial mission? The mission on day one was to take aim at the time and cost of developing new medicines. It took 10 to 12 years on average to develop a medicine and a couple billion dollars along the way. And so the purpose of Royvent was to address the man-made obstacles that contributed to that lengthy process while still, you know, tackling the scientific obstacles just like any other biotech company. Now, you were 28 years old when you launched the company. Uh, Did you get a lot of resistance to these ideas? How were you able to establish credibility? I was a biotech investor for seven years and then left that to start a pharma company without having any primary experience developing drugs, only at most investing in other companies that were doing the same. And so I think this piece of skepticism, number one, was how are you going to try and accomplish the same thing that has been the mantra of the biopharma industry over the last 10 years to shorten the drug development process and to reduce the cost of that process? And, and I think it was understandable. I think part of the one of the things that I did early on was to recruit some of the top drug developers that I had met, that I had come across in my career as an investor to actually join me in this mission. And I figured it was a good way that if they were going to join me, that would help make me successful. And if they weren't going to join me and they thought I was crazy, I wanted to hear that too. How did you get people to invest in a 28-year-old initially? Let's talk about the initial capital. I think there's three ingredients to building a biotech company. There's people, there's drugs, but third, there's importantly capital. And so first it came from investors. I raised money from my first, my former employer. When I told them I wanted to leave, their first ask was whether they could invest in the new company. So that made for an amicable departure. They trusted me after I think working together for a long time. So that I had a head start in that respect. But I think that more generally, you know, I think that I had a both an ambition for using my fresh perspective from the outside to really do things differently, which I think that many investors had an interest in. But at the same time, I was and remain humble about the fact that I haven't done it before. And I think the fact that I was able to build a team of people who included not just iconoclastic contrarian visionaries, and I certainly would call myself a contrarian in that respect. I also had people who had a track record of actually getting it done, working hand in hand together. I think that was kind of the unique combination that Royvent brought to the table in early 2014. As you know, in my life, I've really focused on the individuals as the primary asset of a company. And what struck me was your ability, not only to have vision and talent, but to be able to recruit senior people to join you in bringing capital. Let's talk about, yes, we can take sequencing the human genome from more than a decade and billions down to less than a day and a few hundred dollars. But can we suppress this time 
that it takes to bring a new drug to market and the cost by using technology, combining clinical data and biological data, but using technology to shorten the period of time. And that, as you've said, it was your mission. Let's get specific and talk about how you can do that. First would be how you can use technology to more effectively conduct research, the research of discovering new medicines. Today, we can do something that we couldn't do effectively 30 years ago, which is to design drugs on purpose, to design drugs intentionally. There are these small molecules, these chemicals, millions of them that you test and some thousands of them would bind to a biological target of interest. And you say, hey, maybe that ends up being a drug. That was generation one. Gen two was the advent of the biotech industry over the course of the late 80s and 90s, which said, rather than doing this with libraries of these small chemical molecules, let's instead copy the body itself. Let's harness cells. Let's harness the biological processes of cells to create targeted therapies, therapies that were intentionally made on purpose to bind to a specific biological target. And so that led to the boom of the biotech industry around things like monoclonal antibodies, or today gene therapies that harness natural processes to actually produce a novel type of medicine called biologics. Now, where we are today is the way I think about it is generation three, going back to those small molecules, but now harnessing AI, machine learning, and computational power to intentionally design not just biologics, but actually small molecules and chemicals from scratch that are synthesized in the lab that were the kind that sat on the chemical libraries and shelves of pharmaceutical companies and chemicals companies over the course of the last century, but today are able to be designed from scratch in much the same way that Gen 2, which was the biotech industry, harnessed nature to develop targeted therapies in their own right. So let's take a look at a real live example. Why don't we touch base on Alzheimer's, for example, and what your experience was there? Your mother was a psychiatrist in Cincinnati, and before we knew it was Alzheimer's, was treating many senior citizens with that type of affliction. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one of the things that makes Alzheimer's disease difficult, even more difficult than COVID-19, is that we don't know the biological root cause of the disease. We don't understand exactly what is the, what we call pathophysiology of the disease. And so this is part of the reason why we haven't seen a successful Alzheimer's medicine developed. And so the best we were left with here was looking at what kinds of drugs could actually affect the levels of certain neurotransmitters in the brain with the hope that that might have a discursive impact on the course of the disease itself, if not at least the symptoms and management of these patients. And so one of the things we knew from the first generation of Alzheimer's drugs that were approved is that there's a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, where if there's a higher level of acetylcholine in the synapse, patients tended to have higher cognition and higher function. And that led to at least a better quality of life for patients who were in the nursing home, exactly the kinds of patients that my mother took care of. And so when I got Royven off the ground, one of the early projects that we pursued was a therapy that had been through a partial stage of development that worked on a different mechanism of action, but also with the same end goal of increasing the amount of acetylcholine in the synapse. And the short answer was the drug, while it had 
biologically plausible hypothesis and some, some early supportive clinical data, and it was uncertain of whether it was going to succeed or not, but got a team of developers, including prior developer of Aricept, the most widely used Alzheimer's drug, to head up a team that ultimately answered a question that's the goal of every clinical trial is to answer whether the drug works or not. And one of the things that was a good, even if humbling experience for me early on was to see that drug be tested in a phase three study, go through all of the steps needed to evaluate whether it worked, and then to discover that indeed the drug did not show an effect relative to placebo, which is the direction that so many Alzheimer's drugs have gone over the course of the, the last couple of decades. And so to me, there was a lesson in there, which was that drug development is, especially if you're embarking on this project of shortening the time and cost of drug development, is probably best done in the areas where we have a real understanding of the underlying biology of the disease, because then we can deploy those, let's just say, modern tools that we described earlier to design drugs intentionally rather than empirically. And, and much of what we have done since then as a company has been centered exactly around such projects. Unfortunately, Alzheimer's disease still isn't on that list, but I think that both the public sector and private sector are racing to advance that understanding as we speak. And the flip side is we bring it back to something like an epidemic like COVID-19. I think once you have clear genetic sequence of the virus, once you have a clear understanding of the molecular structure of the virus, that then lends itself to rapidly develop drugs for those specific viral targets, drugs for also even host targets, when we better understand how the virus interacts with human beings, that we can much more rapidly iterate on the development of vaccines or therapeutics than in the case of an Alzheimer's disease, where we know very little about the underlying biology. And so companies like those who have developed vaccines, as well as companies like our own, that have been able to rapidly put medicines into development for addressing the consequences of COVID-19 infection, I think put us in a much better place in an area like infectious diseases than we might be in an area like neurodegenerative disease. You head on a path and then kind of life gets in the way. And the COVID-19, because your family is so involved in many ways in medical, medical care, it has affected your family. And let's start with the birth of your first son, Karthik. Well, it's like you said, Mike, things don't always go as you expected. This wasn't how we expected our 2020 to look as a family. We had the birth of Karthik, our son, in late February. He was thankfully born healthy, approximately on his due date. We were in New York City and COVID-19 hit. And when COVID-19 hit, my wife had a deep personal conflict where she wanted to spend her planned maternity leave with our new son. But at the same time, we were seeing New York City's hospitals beginning to be overrun. She heard from her colleagues what they were seeing in the hospital. It sounded like it was going to be unprecedented. Eventually it was. And so she eventually, I think, felt a sense of duty to just cut her maternity leave short. She had a C-section, but went back at four weeks exactly and went back to the hospital to serve on the front lines along with her colleagues. But that required us to make a very difficult decision as a family at home as well, where Karthik and I had to then sequester away from Apoorva. So we're now in Ohio, where we have been stationed indefinitely since then. We have a home here. And you know it's also where I grew up. It's always been home for me. But it's been difficult to be here without his mother, especially as she's been on the front lines of New York City's hospitals. And to make matters a little more difficult, uh, a little over a week ago, she tested positive. It's not entirely surprising. It was the very reason why we took the precautions we did. But it was a reminder of the risks that not only she, but people like her 
in New York City and across the country are taking every day in being the frontline responders to this you know, unprecedented pandemic for a virus that's as infectious as we've ever seen. And you know, I have to say, I admire her father who did the same thing, even though it's outside his specialty. He volunteered in various ways. He had been going into the hospital regularly, and he too tested positive around the same time frame. And so we're rooting for their rapid recovery. I'm sure they're going to get through it in good health. I have confidence in that. Look, I, we, it's funny because things come full circle. We had a drug in our own pipeline, which was being developed for severe COVID-19 patients. And I would say the combination of not only developing that medicine, but seeing my, my own family members in New York go through what they're going through has really brought us particularly close to this disease. And so, you know, we're talking about their experience personally in informing the way that I'm thinking about what we can do as a company to address not only the treatment of the disease, but potentially the development of other technology to better exchange information about patients undergoing care for the disease. And so, you know, we as a company here from our bedroom in Ohio have been managing a company remotely to develop a medicine, to have developed a piece of technology that's now an open platform for building a COVID-19 patient registry to help researchers in the United States exchange information about COVID-19 patients more easily. And so it's something that's not only turned our personal life upside down, but also has turned upside down a bit the near-term priorities of our company to help do our part in addressing this pandemic as well. So it's like you said, things don't always go as you expected, but you, know, you rise to the occasion when in the best way you can. One of the things in our interaction together over this period of time at Faster Cures has been your focus on areas. The paper you wrote, The Path to Normalcy, was an important paper that we shared with our advisory groups at Faster Cures a number of months ago. And your thought-provoking op-ed on stakeholder capitalism, what were you hoping to achieve with that op-ed? What were the ideas you were hoping to put forth? Yeah, sure, Mike. I think the idea that I wanted to take up in that op-ed was really the question of how companies can make their most meaningful contributions to society. And I think following the 2008 financial crisis, I think there are a lot of jaded attitudes with respect to capitalism from the American public, understandably so. But I think one of the things that I had seen over the last 10 years was a trend of companies towards espousing social values, including values of social responsibility, laudable values, but values that I thought were better reserved for the democratic sphere of our society, for our citizenry to decide upon on issues ranging from environmentalism to labor matters to diversity in the workplace. I wrote this before the COVID-19 pandemic had really hit us hard. The op-ed was published in, I think, early February. But I'm reminded of its message now as well, when the thing we want from the biopharma industry is not, even companies like ours, is not the promulgation of some social value, but we want a socially valuable outcome in terms of developing medicines, cures, and vaccines to protect us from this pandemic. That is what companies have to offer. Like we saw in the rollout of testing during the early phase of this pandemic, we might be better off reserving innovation and the development of new technology to the private sector. So I think about it as a sort of division of responsibility between the public and private spheres of our society, each of whom have something important to contribute and wondering whether everyone might be best off if we actually were most lucid about that along the way. I want to wish your entire family good health and safety. And particularly, I look forward to you leading the way to find a way to shorten the period of time that it takes to bring 
solutions to life-threatening diseases in the future. All the best. Thank you, Mike. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.